welcome back to the Truth Tank. I am your host, the Tank. Apologies for this episode being a little late. Uh, I've had a, I've been a bit sick lately. I've had a nasty throat infection, so it was pretty hard to talk. We're back. Tonight's episode is part two of the Mayan calendar. If you haven't already downloaded episode seven, the Mayan calendar, stop what you're doing and go ahead and download it now, because you're not going to have any idea what tonight's episode's about. Alright, so before we get into tonight's show. This is a few things I want to go over. If you're enjoying the Truth Tank, there's a few things you can do to help it grow. One is rate, review, share, and subscribe. Join the Facebook group. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google, Podbean, or whatever your chosen podcatcher is. Share with your friends and co-workers who you think might like the show. I want to try and get as many downloads as I can before the end of the year. And I can't do that without your help. So it'd be a really big help to myself and the show. If you can share and download and spread the truth tank around all your social media platforms, email, whatever, that'd be a really big help and it'll help the, sh- help the truth tank get to the next level. Tonight's show will be a continuation to part one. On this show, we'll be looking at a couple of more pieces that make up the Mayan calendar. Up first, we'll be looking at planetary alignment and why the Mayans were so keen on syncing the calendar with the movement of the planets. Up next, we'll be looking at time slips this is a bit of a spooky topic we're also going to be diving headfirst into the quantum realm we're going to cover some pretty heavy topics tonight and we're going down the quantum rabbit hole so brace yourselves it's going to be a pretty big show and finally we're going to look at the mars venus relationship in relation to the mayan calendar these two planets above all had a special significance to the mayans but before we get into tonight's show, I have a little correction to make on the last episode. I should have said Mayan calendars, not calendar. As there are many different Mayan calendars and not just one that all the Mayan cities used. But I think most people could probably have figured that one out for themselves. So strap in, ignore everything that you think you know. And without further delay, let's get into tonight's show. This is episode 8, The Mayan Calendar, Part 2. Okay, first up tonight is planetary alignment. So planetary alignment is pretty much, as its, as its name suggests, is the alignment of the planets. Either one, two, three, or more of the planets coming into perfect alignment. Or near enough to a perfect alignment. The li- alignments are never exactly perfect. They're, they're pretty close, but they're still a few degrees off. There's a, there's a theory that once all the planets align, it's going to somehow knock Earth into a, another orbit or into a black hole. One big problem with this theory is that that can never really happen. It will take billions of years for all the planets to align perfectly. Planetary alignment happens normally and is just part of the celestial cycles. So there's certain planets like Mars and Venus that align up with Earth every so many days or years. So to give a bit of background, I found a good article called The Great Galactic Alignment of 2012. This connects back to the first episode where we looked at 2012 in retrospect and all the um, varying doomsday theories that revolved around the Mayan calendar ending on the 21st of the 12th, 2012. This article, The Great Galactic Alignment of 2012, was posted seven years ago 
and it's by Nancy Ali. You can find it on multiverse.ssl.berkeley.edu. Miss Ali outlines that some who claim that the Maya predicted the end of the world in 2012 use a particular astronomical alignment that is believed will occur at the end of the 13th Bucktoon in the Maya Long Count calendar, also known as December 21st, 2012. As evidence to support their notions, the claim is that on the date the Sun will align with the center of the Milky Way galaxy, which only happens once every 25,772 years. The claim that the Maya knew about this alignment and set their long count calendar to the end of this day, because the alignment will cause something to happen, just what this something is seems to depend on your imagination. You can visit Wikipedia for more about such claims and the people making them. Note that the claims are not being made by Maya people themselves. That is a pretty key point she brings up because all the 2012 theories revolved around internet fringe theories based on no archaeological or scientific evidence. They're also based on theories or misinterpretations by archaeologists or historians to certain extents, to a certain extent, or they just were blown out of proportion or they were a hypothesis or a theory that was based on a loose translation of, of the Maya stele found at Akapan. I can't remember the name of it. Stele, stele 6, I think it is. So... In typical fashion, the Western mind thought it knew more than the indigenous peoples who have been living with the calendar and these stories for thousands of years. No one took the indigenous peoples' stories into account. I don't think any indigenous Maya tribes ever said anything about the end of the world on the 21st or the 12th. And this is something I'll get into in the next couple of shows. We're going to be looking at the indigenous perspective of the Mayan calendar. This is an important thing to note that all these stories and all these theories came from Western Western philosophy. The article goes on, the galactic context. The sun is but one of a few hundred billion stars that make up the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy is shaped like a disk with a bulge in the center. The disk is about 100,000 light years across and a 1,000 light years thick. Remember, a light year is the distance that light travels in one year. It is not a measurement of time, but of distance. A good scale model for the galaxy would be a CD, DVD, Blu-ray disc with a marble in the center. The sun is located about 30,000 light years from the center, about halfway out. The sun moves in a roughly circular orbit about the center of the galaxy. The fine details of the orbit are pretty messy, taking about 250 million years to complete one trip. That's a long fucking time that no one is probably ever going to be around to see. It's also a cycle of time that even in the mind context of a, of a long count calendar is too much time to account for. Given that resources could be going into counting or predicting cycles that were roughly more in their, in their wheelhouse, as in a couple of hundred, maybe a couple of thousand years. Nothing that really expanded into the millions of years. And that's a trait that we haven't seen with the minds is they never really accounted for millions of years, just several thousands of years. Right, back to the article. Since we are located inside the disk of the Milky Way, we do not have that outsider view of it. Here on Earth, we see it as a band of hazy light running through the sky with dark rifts inside it. From this perspective, and using only an unaided eye, it is difficult to discern its center. But with modern tools like telescopes that can see infrared and radio light, we now know the center is located in the constellation of Sagittarius. 
which is most prominent in the summertime sky in the northern hemisphere. So this, once again, this correlates with a summer solstice. If I, if I was a betting man, this is probably what the minds were accounting for, the countdown to the, of the summer solstice. At the center of the Milky Way galaxy lies a black hole with the mass of millions of suns. We found that most, if not all, big galaxies in the universe contain these monstrous black holes in their centers. There's a key part of the article uh, entitled Alignment with the Galactic Center. When people talk about alignments, we need to be clear. The sun and the center of the galaxy are only two points. They always form a line. So an alignment in space... So an alignment in space of the sun with the galaxy is meaningless. Throwing Earth into the mix changes the situation. In this case, an alignment of all three objects is probably something rarer, right? It won't be happening in 2012. In fact, an alignment of the Earth, the sun, and the galactic center will not happen for over 4 million years. In our current position in the galaxy, the sun never appears to align exactly with the galactic center from Earth's perspective. The closest the sun appears to be next to the galactic center is about 6.4 degrees, nearly 13 times the width of the full moon. That's not much of an alignment. It will take over 4 million years for a solar system to move around the galaxy, enough to allow us to see the sun projected directly in front of the galactic center. So that's a long fucking time to wait. And the fact that it's never really going to happen, I think this can pretty much rule out any connection with 2012. However, moving along... There's a key, another key part of this article that I think kind of sums up what the Mayans were counting down for. The solstice alignment. On December 21st, 2012, the sun will be aligned with the midi- middle of the Milky Way band. From our perspective on Earth, though, it is not aligned with the galactic center. In this part of the Milky Way, there are several dark rifts and the sun appears in one of them. The date of this alignment, December 21st, is the winter solstice. The shortest day, longest night of the year. In the Northern Hemisphere, however, when the Maya created the long count calendar over 2,000 years ago, the sun would not have been seen in this location in the Milky Way on the winter solstice. The date of an annual alignment of the sun with the stars, including the galaxy, changes by one day every 72 years, due to a wobble in the Earth's rotation called precession. The exact alignment of the sun with any spot in the heavens on a specific date, therefore, only occurs every 25,772 years. Also a long time to wait. There is evidence that has convinced several scholars to think that the classic Maya knew about this processional drift in time of the solar-stellar alignments. Indeed, the evidence indicates that the ancient Maya may have synchronized several of the calendars to alignments of important constellations with the sun, They may have calculated the locations of these constellations into prehistory to make these alignments coincide with mythological events. If they were able to run the processional clock backwards, they could just as easily run it forward. Such astronomical observations were well within the observational capabilities. For example, let's say the ancient Maya noted the date that the sun appeared in the middle of a dark rift in the Milky Way located in the constellation Sagittarius. After 72 years, they would note that the alignment was happening one day later. After 144 years, the date would now be two days later than the first observation. After several generations, they would have enough data to make sure that the procession was real. Not a mistake in counting days. And be able to accurately account for it. This leads us to wonder if the ancient Maya set their long count calendar 
to reach the end of the 13th Bucktoon when the sun was seen in one of the dark rifts in the Milky Way during the winter solstice. These rifts are actually made up of enormous clouds of dust and gas where new stars are forming. There are so many of these clouds between us and the stars of the galaxy behind them that the light from those distant stars is blocked out. So we see the shapes of these clouds in silhouette. We can see the clouds themselves in infrared light. NASA missions like IRAS, Spitzer and WISE have mapped out the plane of the Milky Way to understand the roles these clouds play in the cycle of the galaxy. The sun does appear to cross through a rift on December 21st, 2012, but it began crossing through the rift on the winter solstice date back in about the year 1800 AD. The rift does not have exact boundaries since it was since it is made of clouds of dust and gas. The sun will continue to be viewed against the backdrop of this rift during the winter solstice until at least the year 2100. If the ancient Maya were aware of this procession, they would have known that the sun would have been viewed within this rift during the winter solstice for about 400 years. So what importance would they have given such an alignment? What would they have thought that it meant? This is an open question for Maya researchers. We know that their understanding of the sky was intimately tied with their mythology and religion. Scholars are trying to understand and decipher that mythology as best as they can through the study of empirical evidence. What if there wasn't an, an exact alignment of the sun with the center of the galaxy? As seen from Earth, would there be any physical effects on us? Pause. Yeah, this is... This part's actually pretty... This part's pretty interesting. Would there be any effects on human beings and their psychological and physical behavior? This is something I... I hadn't even really thought about until I started doing research for this show. So continuing on with the article. Well, the central part of the galaxy has the mass and luminosity of tens of billions of suns. But it is 30,000 light years away. Because of the great distance, the strength of its gravity on Earth is several hundred million times weaker than the strength of the sun's gravity. Plus, the sun is hundreds of millions of times brighter in the sky than the Milky Way. But also of a huge difference in distance, so the answer is a resounding no. It makes no difference if the sun is aligned or not. The effects of the center of the Milky Way galaxy on Earth are utterly insignificant any day of the year. People often worry about the effects of gravitational tides when there is talk of an astronomical alignment. Tides are a shearing, stretching aspect of gravity and are much weaker than regular gravitational forces. So, if the gravity of the Milky Way is totally insignificant compared to that of the Sun, or even the Moon, then the tide, tidal forces will be more, will be all the more insignificant. Even if the very talented ancient Maya astronomers and priests meant for the 13th Bucktoon anniversary to occur with the alignment of the Sun in a dark rift on the Milky Way on the winter solstice, it isn't a rare alignment. So nothing physical could be expected to happen in 2012, that would have been occurring already for hundreds and even billions of years. It looks like the galactic alignment of 2012 is much ado about nothing. So that article is The Great Galactic Alignment of 2012 by Nancy Ali. So, a few takeaways from that. The sun always aligns with the center of the galaxy, or in this case, the center of the Milky Way. There's nothing really special, that just seems to be that that's just a natural cycle of the Milky Way galaxy. The sun is just one star out of billions in this galaxy. 
yes, the sun is essential to our survival and it plays a extremely important part in the rotations of Earth and our daily lives. I mean, it's obvious that we wouldn't have daylight if it wasn't for the sun. Nothing could grow and it'll be Earth would be a pretty shitty place to live. So the common theory is that at the center of most of the galaxies there are black holes smack right bang in the middle of them. That's interesting, so scientists and astronomers today don't know a hell of a lot about black holes. There's still a very big question mark over what they what they are how and how they occur. I think most people think that there's they're a collapsed or dead star that has it basically imploded on itself and is more or less just concentrated dark matter energy. That's more or less a science fiction theory to it, but it's probably most likely the right one. I don't think anyone's going to volunteer to put their hand up to be the first person to fly into a black hole. Sounds like a pretty shitty one-sided mission. The sun sits about 30,000 light years away from the exact center of the universe. That takes 250 million years for the rotation of the sun to be complete. Which is a really fucking long time when you think about it. So the question is, were the Mayans tracking this rotation? Does this uh, account for the never-ending calendar cycle? As I previously said, I don't think the Mayans were accounting for the 250 million year time period it takes for the sun to complete its rotation. That wasn't the key focus of any of the calendars or the... And didn't really have an effect on their daily life, that rotation. However... If you want to look at this from a different angle, is that one of the reasons the Mayan calendar seems never really to run out? It's just a never-ending cycle of calendar cycles that make up these cycles that are based on celestial and cosmic events. In one way, that wasn't the focus of their daily life, but could that have been a reason for the never-ending calendar cycles? Makes you think. So when we talk about planetary alignment, alignment is a very broad term. The Mayans, I doubt, would have been accounting for all of them, as it's that would seem like a pretty impossible feat. Because it seems like there's a, basically an infinite number of stars and galaxies in the universe. Also stands the reason there's an infinite number of cycles and rotations and planetary alignment rotations, which would take all of time to calculate and predict. Therefore, that would be a complete and utter waste of time and an utter headfuck for anyone who was even thinking of devoting any type of time and effort to tracking those alignments. So I think that could probably be safely ruled out as the accounting for every alignment. I think the minds would have focused on a, a few key alignments that had a role to play in their culture, society, and their mythology. That stands to reason that that's probably the most logical logical choice and the most logical way of looking at alignments and rotations. One that can be ruled out, the sun and the center of the galaxy are always in alignment, so this alignment is basically meaningless to the minds. That stands the reason they would have known about it and they would have known about it pretty quickly. So what makes an alignment worth paying attention to? Is it when either the Earth or the surrounding planets are brought into the mix? As I just said, the sun and the center of the galaxy alignment is pretty much a meaningless alignment. So, what made an alignment worthy of paying attention to to the Mayans? Was it 
when either the Earth or surrounding planets were brought into the mix. Was it when Earth and Saturn lined up? Earth and Neptune? Earth, Neptune, Pluto? Was that a worth? Was that a worthy alignment to record? As we're going to find out a bit later in the show, I think the alignments the Mayans paid specific attention to were the alignments of Mars and Venus. As we'll come to later on, Mars and Venus were central planets in Mayan mythology. And as that article just stated, the Earth-Sun center alignment won't be happening for another 4 million years due to our position in the galaxy. So it stands to reason they, they weren't accounting for that. So as it sits right now, the sun never fully aligns with the center. The amount is off by roughly roughly 13 times wider than a full moon. Nothing really ever seems to perfectly align in the universe. Everything's kind of off-kilter by a couple of degrees. Yes, to a probably to an observer or to us or to someone observing this a physical alignment of the planets, it probably looks like it's aligned, but... You're talking about distances and objects that are so large that an alignment that was off-kilter by a a few degrees to us is probably like, yeah, like they said, 13 times wider than a full moon. That's probably nothing. Given given how big some planets like like Venus and Saturn are, they're completely dwarf planets like the Earth and Mars. So, the alignments of Mars and Venus will come to a bit later. Let us go back to 2012 for a minute. 2012 doomsday theorists have suggested that planetary alignment may be responsible for a great cataclysm that was to occur on the 21st of the 12th, 2012. Fortunately for us, they got that really wrong. Some of the theories that were thrown out there with planetary, when the planets align, it would you create a great flood that would cover the world and kill everybody, basically like Noah's flood. If the planets aligned, it would somehow knock Earth into another orbit or another dimension or into a black hole. or It'd be like a game of pull. One ball hits another, hits another. In this case, a planet hits another planet, it hits another planet and crashes into Earth. Kind of ridiculous. It's kind of a cool visual if you're, if you're making a sci-fi movie. But in reality, probably not going to happen. There's also other theories that it was going to, it was going to cause electrical and magnetic problems with the Earth's magnetic field. The one I found really, really stupid was the one they used for that ridiculous 2012 movie, the um, solar flares from the sun were going to somehow cause global disasters like earthquakes and volcanoes to all simultaneously go off because somehow those solar waves can penetrate deep into the ground and cause the center of the Earth to basically... Explode outwards. I mean, what a like crock of fucking shit. Pretty ridiculous. I've heard a bunch of others, which I don't care to remember. Okay, so <clears throat> moving along, there was never an alignment set for that date, which rules out the Mayans counting for that. There was a celestial event that occurred on December 21st, 2012. This was the date for the winter solstice in the Northern Hemisphere. <clears throat> so going back to the effects on humans. There is a theory out there called harmonic convergence. It's a little hard to get any kind of inform- any information on harmonic convergence. It's it means a few different things in a few different contexts, but what we're talking about is it somehow it has to do with humans being in harmony with themselves and nature and the cycles. It's also it's also been suggested that harmonic convergence has 
a lot to do with humans and the cycles of war, peace, tolerance, and enlightenment, meaning that in certain years and certain decades, it seems like all people want to do is fight and kill each other. Hence, like, we get outbreaks of, you know, the outbreak of World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, these cycles of war and hate, violence, death and destruction. Or in other cases, we have decades or years where people seem to be more peaceful and more tolerant of others. It's more of a uh, enlightened cycle, if you will. So if you want to look at the 60s, for example, there was huge intolerance and injustice right across the world. We had the Vietnam War, which sucked a lot of countries into a very thankless and pointless conflict. Soldiers that came home were spat on, were not respected. They were seen as evil, even though they were most of them were conscripted into the military to fight in a war they didn't believe or didn't support. A nice duality and a nice opposition to that was the hippie movement. You know, peace and love, man. We should all love each other no matter where you come from, what you look like. Everything's peace and love. So in that same decade, we've had war, death and intolerance, peace, love and unity. And that hippie movement crossed over into the 70s. For the most part, the 70s were pretty peaceful. Every decade has its ups and downs, but this is a nice example of you know peace and harmony. So we had pioneering cinema technology, television, sports. Everything was... Everything was coming up in the 70s. In the 80s, this was this continued. 80s was, yeah, more or less pretty peaceful until probably maybe the the late 80s. There's a couple of conflicts here and there. 90s, another another era of change, another ups and downs. 2000s kicked off with a with a you know world changing event in 9/11, and that brings us to the current age we're in now, where we seem to be well and truly stuck in a war, hate, death cycle as a very fractured division of society if you look at the trump election you've got blues versus reds you've got people hating each other for voicing their opinions you have intolerance you have hate all because of what someone had a difference of opinion or they voted for somebody different it doesn't change the person they are it just means you don't agree with them for the last 10 years it seems that it's slowly been getting worse but in the last couple of years we've been in this a really nasty intolerant hate cycle for lack of a better word does that mean something's good around the way yeah i believe so i think this is kind of the age of political correctness and the let's silence one side because we don't want to hear the other side's opinion because it might trigger us this complete bullshit that social media has basically done to the world it has just ceased all logical thought for most young people they just believe the shit they see on facebook instagram and they believe that's the way of the world we're in a cycle of entitlement. People think they're entitled to more than what they actually are. There's so much hate and animosity for your fellow man. But I believe this is a cycle that has to happen and a cycle that has to end. All cycles begin and all of them end. We're going to get to a more peaceful, more enlightened, more intolerant stage in the next cycle. So if you look up harmonic convergence in the dictionary, it reads, The harmonic convergence is the name given to the world's first synchronized global peace meditation, which occurred on August 16th and 17th, 1987. This event also closely coincided with the exceptional alignment of planets in the solar system. So everything's connected. Although the event has been predicted by author Tony Shearer in his book Lord of the Dawn, 1971, the principal organizers of the Harmonic Convergence event 
were Jose Aguelos and his wife, Lodeline Buerces Aguelos. I hope I'm saying that right. Via the Planet Ark Network, a peace movement they founded in 1983. According to Shearer's interpretation of Aztec cosmology, the selected date marked the end of the 22 cycles of 52 years each, or 1,144 years in all. The 22 cycles were divided into 13 heaven cycles, which began in AD 843 and ended in 1519, when the nine hell cycles began, ending 468 years later, in 1987. The beginning of the nine hell cycles was precisely the day Hernan Cortes landed in Mexico, April 22nd, 1519, coinciding with the read on the Aztec Mayan calendar, the day sacred to Mesoamerican cultural hero Quetzalcoatl. The nine hell cycles of 52 years each precisely ended precisely on August 16th and 17th, 1987. Shearer introduced the dates and the prophecy to Aguelas, in 1970, and he eventually co-opted them and created the name Harmonic Convergence as the public title of the event. The timing of the Harmonic Convergence was allegedly significant within the Mayan calendar, with some consideration also given to European and Asian astrological traditions. The chosen dates have the distinction of allegedly making a planetary alignment with the Sun, Moon, and six out of eight planets being part of a grand trine. Through, though Aguelas has eventually connected the timing of the harmonic convergence with his understanding of the significance of Maya calendrics. The dates themselves were derived not from Maya cosmology, but from Tony Shearer's reconstructed Aztec prophecies. The next predicted harmonic convergence aligning other planets will be 2019, the 3rd of the 3rd, 19. Uh, unfortunately, I missed that one. I've also read somewhere a, a different meaning to harmonic convergence that goes back way before the 1960s, way before the 1980s, but I can't remember where I found it. Probably should have done more homework for this episode, but what you going to do? I find it really interesting. Can planetary alignments, can you know electromagnetic interference, can that play a part with human emotions, human psyche, and humans' physical actions? Can we be influenced by events and energies outside of our planet? It's a very interesting theory to think about, and I could probably do an entire episode just on that. So let's move along. This is a very interesting theory that involves CERN, the European Organization for Nuclear Research. This theory involves CERN, the Large Hadron Collider, and some concerning conspiracies around them. One of the most interesting... And out there theories is that is that CERN created a time slip and sucked this world into an alternative one. It's pretty far out there. I found this somewhere on I found an article on Facebook that outlined this. I can't remember who wrote it or where it was from, but I found it pretty interesting. So according to this, that CERN created a artificial black hole that inadvertently sucked this world into another one, and that we're now seeing the effects of this years after the event. So before we get into time slips, let's have a quick look at some of the strange events CERN has been accused of. So if you don't know CERN, they do conduct a lot of atomic and particle experiments. I could also do a whole episode just on CERN. 
there's lots of conspiracy theories around them. I'll leave that up to you to make up your own mind if you if you think they're good or bad. They do a lot of scientific research and and nuclear and particle experiments. Stands the reason they probably know what they're doing or know what they're doing to a certain degree because they haven't blown the planet up yet. But let's have a look at some of the some of the five strangest things that CERN has been accused of. This is an article I got from StrangerDimensions.com entitled Five Strange Claims About CERN, Time Waves, Portals, and Hell. Alright, so the first one is Accidental Teleportation of an Airbus. This one's pretty funny. It's also frightening if they could, if it was CERN that was responsible for it. So it reads, we'll begin with what some have claimed is the incredible cover-up of a teleportation and time wave incident that occurred in November of 2009. The story which allegedly came out of the Kremlin told of a Iberworld Airbus A330-300 carrying 170 passengers that mysteriously vanished only to instantly reappear some 5,500 miles away. It had been en route near Santa Cruz, Bolivia, but instead found itself in the Canary Islands. CERN was implicated in the alleged event because the Large Hadron Collider began its first operational run in November of 2009. But that's not all. Time waves and blackouts. That month's Airbus incident is intertwined with the aforementioned time wave, which some claim rippled through South America causing a power blackout. Officials dismissed this blackout as caused by ordinary environmental issues. Conspiracy theories tell us a different story, an anomalous event at the Large Hadron Collider, distorted Earth's magnetic field, creating a ripple through space-time that in- interacted with the ancient pyramid complexes throughout South America. Very interesting. One of these, the Gate of the Sun near La Paz, Bolivia, was allegedly the focal point of the time wave, sending it straight in the direction of the airbus that seemingly teleported. At nearly the same time, physicists at CERN shut down the Large Hadron Collider, citing a piece of bread that a bird had dropped into some machinery. Huh. How secure is the facility if a bird can drop a piece of bread into into a piece of machinery and shut down the Large Hadron Collider? It's a pretty shitty excuse, so it's either a really bad cover-up, or it actually happened. Either one is as frightening as the, as the last. So I'm sure CERN knows what they're doing. Uh, I'm sure that they're not going to conduct experiments that are so dangerous or could disrupt magnetic fields or open up black holes of space-time. However, there's always a possibility that could actually happen. I don't think it's as bad as a lot of people make they make it out to be. But, you know, it could it could happen. You just never know. Either way, it's a... It's a Interesting theory, the plane disappearing, like if CERN was responsible, you know, can they work on that technology and make the airport system and flying more efficient? Can they just open up portals from one side of the world to the other so you don't have to, you know, wait, you don't have to spend 48 hours on a plane getting to another country? That'd be really cool. They'd save a lot of fuel, save a lot of time and save a lot of money. Get onto it, CERN. The Hadron Collider distorting Earth's magnetic field, creating a ripple through space-time. Interacted with pyramid complexes throughout South America. That one's interesting. If you're into ancient aliens, that's a theory that they use electromagnetic energy. One theory is that the pyramids were power generators. That there was a chemical reaction inside the pyramid that let off a electro 
electromagnetic energy in the form of oscillating power that powered cities like Egypt. But, you know, we, we don't know enough about pyramids and know what's inside them, how they work, or what their purpose was. Okay, let's move along to the next one. Portals in the sky. In December 2015, tourists visiting Geneva, Switzerland, allegedly captured the above footage, showcasing what appeared to be an orb entering an interdimensional portal in the sky above CERN. The portal vanished as soon as the orb completed its passage. While the video is likely CGI published by a YouTube channel with a history of dubious paranormal videos, there have been more than a few claims of portals materializing above the Large Hadron Collider. Here's another video from May 2016 regarding a possible cloud portal, which appeared just after CERN's power went out, reportedly due to a weasel. Fuck, what is it with the blaming small animals for CERN's power problems? Perhaps in 2016, says the video's narrator, they'll finally birth the dark universe and open the portal. In 2018, six years after the discovery of the Higgs boson CERN particle, Physicist Eckhard Elson said of the particle that is often considered a portal to new physics. Perhaps some would take this comment literally. Yeah, once again, I suppose theoretically entirely possible. The amount of energy needed to generate such a experiment is probably more than the entire worldwide power grid. Yeah, once again, it's theoretically possible, I guess. So, yeah, who knows? Interdimensional orb. It could also just have been a UFO. I am finding it pretty coincidental that there's a lot of power outages and machinery failures that are, that are blamed on birds or squirrels, then strange aerial phenomena happen. So maybe CERN are fucking with things they don't understand. Right, moving along. Creating a Stargate. This one's pretty cool. Perhaps the strangest allegation against CERN is that they're specifically building a Stargate, a portal to another time or place to allow the return of the Anunnaki. These Anunnaki were powerful ancient deities that once inhabited Earth. Some ancient astronaut theorists believe instead they were extraterrestrials, the very same who assisted in early mankind's progress. The only downside is that we don't know why or if CERN were successful, whether or not the old gods would come in peace. Yes, that's the reason if you're going to make a Stargate, you kind of want to have some idea what's on the other side. And if you are trying to contact the gods of old, the Anunnaki, whoever it happens to be, you might want to do a bit of background and make sure they're friendly before you open a portal to let them through. At some stage I'll be doing a Anunnaki episode. If you're familiar with ancient TV show Ancient Aliens or just Ancient Alien Theory in general, you've probably heard that name, the Anunnaki, several times. That's a subject for another day. Alright, this one's a creepy one. Opening the gates of hell. However, portals and stargates may be, may be the least of our worries. Some feel that during their experiments and searching for extra dimensions, CERN may open the wrong door. You know, that's, once again, totally possible. Which one's the wrong door? The one that leads to hell. According to some concerned citizens of Earth, as the power of the Large Hadron Collider grows, so does the risk. Or as one YouTuber suggests, CERN may not just be attempting to replicate the conditions of early universe, of the early universe, but actually reverse time back to just before God locked the fallen angels away. If you subscribe to the religious view of things, that one's very frightening. Even if it's not, I think there is definitely 
dark energy and dark forces in the in the universe that we haven't even begun to understand yet. So whether that unlocks a portal to to that side, that's still pretty frightening. Like I like one of Gra- like I said on the last podcast, one of Graham Hancock's theories with the Mayans was these priests that used hallucinogenic substances were in contact with spiritual deities from another realm. And he he suggests that these these entities were evil, nefarious entities that wanted death, blood, and destruction, and demanded blood sacrifice in order to cross into our world or to give the priests and ruling elites knowledge. Is it true CERN are fucking with things they don't or just think they understand? I read something similar to this a while ago about CERN had accidentally created a wormhole and sucked us into an alternative universe. The article I read mentioned that things are slightly different today than what people can remember, citing that the Statue of Liberty is on a different island and that the torch is close to tourists. Others have stated similar occurrences. This one's interesting, but also is pretty explainable. At one stage, I thought the Statue of Liberty was on a different island to the one that it currently resides, which is Liberty Island. It kind of always got Ellis Island and Liberty Island confused. I always kind of thought they were connected, but they're, they're not. It's not so much a conspiracy theory as just maybe ignorance or misinformation. Or people's, people's memories simply forget, because people forget the memory evolves over time. Sometimes you, even if you have a, a good memory and you remember something from your childhood or whatever, the mind interprets the memory differently at different stages of your life. So certain details might become mixed up, jumbled, or just blurred. So I think I think this is pretty common. Uh, we've all had experiences where we could have sworn that something like a beloved movie or a restaurant was actually one way, and then one day you find out it has always been different, little to your knowledge. An example of this could be like the the design of a car or a favorite location that you just know was a certain way years and years and years ago, you know, when you were a kid or a teenager, until you go back years later and it was vastly different all along. So what's more, what the more logical approach is, what has changed, the physical location or the, the car, the scene from a movie, or your memory's interpretation of said event or memory? So what's the more logical avenue? The change of a physical location, the design of a car, a scene of a movie, or your mind's interpretation of a memory from years and years ago. Stands the reason it's probably the mind. Unless someone is playing the world's best practical joke on you or something. Talking from personal experience, this has happened to me a few times. Like when I go back and watch my favorite movies, I swear that a scene was different when I was 15 to when I'm currently viewing it now at 30. Looking back at it, there are things that were not there or just completely different to the last hundred times I saw it. It feels pretty weird and pretty alienating when this happens. You know, when you've watched a scene you know so well in your head a million times and then one day you go back and rewatch it and it's 85% different to when you first watched it all those years ago. This phenomena actually has a name. It's called the Mandela Effect. A lot of articles involving the Mandela Effect have been popping up all over the internet. So much so that even CNBC has picked up on it they've got an article called physicists assure us that we are not living in an alternative reality where trump is president published february 22nd 2017 by michelle costello 
There's a theory going around online that CERN, the European Organization for Nuclear Research, experiments have caused the world's has caused the world to shift into an alternative reality where Donald Trump has become president. As most people would agree, this clearly can be labeled fake news. CERN research captures the imagination of lots of people, which is why CERN has been featured in a lot of science fiction books, even movies around the world. A spokesperson for CERN told CNNBC when asked about the Trump theory, These imaginative works inspired by our scientific research are works of fiction generated to capture the reader or viewer's sense of wonder and should not be confused with actual scientific research. Trump theorists cite the Mandela Effect, a phenomenon that occurs when large groups of people believe something happened even though evidence shows it isn't true. Some think more of these incidents have occurred since CERN was established and suggests that it is particle physics experiments are causing the world to shift into parallel universes. People are recalling the original reality, which is why there is divergent thought according to the believers. Mandela Effect examples include thinking Nelson Mandela died in jail in the 1980s, mistaking Bernstein Bears for its actual name, Bernstein Bears, and believing in a 1990s movie where comedian Sinbad played a genie, all which, all of which are false. Yeah, I actually thought that Sinbad did play a genie in a movie. I, s- I swear I've seen trailers for it. I mean, it could have been called Sinbad the Genie or something, but I definitely remember that one That one happening. But yeah, according to this, it's completely false. In Trump's case, conspiracy theories have cited evidence like his quote on terrorist attacks on Sweden and uh, as a and assertions that Muslims were cheering in the streets after 9-11, both events which they believe stem from memories of a parallel universe Trump used to reside in. A shift could also explain a rash of unprecedented outcomes in sports like the Chicago Cubs winning their first World Series since 1908 and Donald Trump's election to the presidency, despite most polling predicting Hillary Clinton was going to win. The idea has generated several joke threads and perhaps serious threads on internet message board Reddit. What's probably really happening is that people have lapses in memory, especially when they aren't paying close attention to details. In any case, CERN's research isn't focused on finding a way to travel to different dimensions. The faculty brings together physicists from more than 60 countries and 600 institutions to explore the structure of the universe using the smallest particles and making them collide at almost the speed of light. When giving metaphors to explain CERN's research, I often compare it to, to geology, as CERN spokeswomen explained by email. Geologists study the patterns and structures of rocks to learn about the origins and formation of the Earth. Particle physicists study the properties and behavior of subatomic particles to learn about the formation and evolution of matter in the universe. Everyone from young children to particle physicists learn about the world by gathering data, making observations and experimentally testing ideas. The researchers at CERN are applying the same methodology to learn more about the smallest components of matter. So, very interesting. Are we living in a parallel universe? What if we actually were? What if they did completely fuck fuck us all over and we are in a parallel universe? Yeah, it could be true. But I think we would notice more weird alternative things happening around the world. There's a couple of ones that 
most people can't believe, such as Trump being president because a bunch of lazy millennials didn't get off their ass and vote. That's why Trump got elected, not because we're living in a parallel universe generated by an experiment created by CERN. However, we could, but it seems more likely that it's down to laziness. Still a very interesting theory, and as an article cited that if enough people generate an eye an idea or a, a thought that something was a certain way, then everyone then everyone starts to believe it. Such as the Bernstein Bears, that's been covered on numerous other podcasts before. I've actually seen a picture of the of a metal lunchbox with the Bernstein Bear with the with the Bern, Bernstein 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 Bears on it, whatever you what however you remember it, and it did state it does confirm what the what the article. Outlined, yeah. Did Nelson Mandela die in a prison cell at, in during the nineteen eighties? Don't know. Are we knocked into a parallel universe? But stands the reason these things have probably happened more than a few times throughout history, and you can't blame CERN for that because CERN didn't exist a hundred years ago. They're a relatively new organization with people in the Middle Ages remembering certain events or certain passages of the bible or certain battles a different way yeah i guess we'll never know so did we enter a time slip in 2012 are we living in an alternative reality reality did cern really conduct a particle experiment that opened up a black hole probably not however what is very interesting is that in july of 2012 cern discovered the higgs boson particle and its potential to create or in some cases destroy the Higgs boson particle, if you don't know, is also known as the God particle for its creative powers. Uh, the Higgs boson particle, on one hand, is very cool, but it's a particle that caused enough alarm to certain scientists, one of which being Stephen Hawking. It's been the bane of many scientists and th- physicists for many years. He's been very, he was very outspoken about. The Higgs, bo- the Higgs boson, and what its discovery meant. Because according to a popular Mechanics.com article, what Stephen Hawking really said about destroying the universe. This is by Laura Dataro, published September tenth, twenty fourteen. All right, so I won't go. I won't go through all the article because I've used a lot of them so far. The article outlines that. In July of 2012, scientists at CERN's Large Hadron Collider culminated decades of work with the discovery of the Higgs boson. Most physicists celebrated, Stephen Hawking did not. The famed physicist expressed his disappointment that nothing more unusual was found, calling the discovery a pity in, in a way. But did he ever say the Higgs could destroy the universe? Pause for a sec. Yeah, so the main concern about this particle is that if it has the power to create, it has the power to destroy. A lot of people are concerned that the discovery of the Higgs uh, boson particle could potentially destroy the world, if not our universe. So back to it. That's what many reports in media said earlier this week. Quoting a preface, Hawking wrote to a book called Starmus. According to the Australian, the preface reads in part, the Higgs potential has the worrisome feature that it may that it might become metastable at energies above 100 billion giga-electron volts. That's a fucking mouthful. This could mean that the universe could undergo catastrophic vacuum decay, 
with a bubble of the true vacuum expanding at the speed of light. This could happen at any time and we wouldn't see it coming. And we'd all be fucked just like that. What Hawking is talking about here is not the Higgs boson, but what's called the Higgs potential, which are totally different concepts, says Kate Ma Katie Mack, a theoretical physicist at Melbourne University. The Higgs field permeates the entire universe, and the Higgs boson is an excitation of that field, just like an electron volt is an excitation of an electric field. In this analogy, the Higgs potential is like a voltage determining the value of, a f of the field. Once physicists began to close in the mass of the Higgs boson, they were able to work out the Higgs potential. The value seemed to reveal that the universe exists in what's known as metastable vacuum state, or false vacuum, a state that's stable for now but could slip into the true vacuum at any time. This is catastrophic vacuum decay in Hawking's warning, though he is not the first to posit the idea. Is he right? There are a couple of really good reasons to think that it's not the end of the story, Max says. There are two ways for a metastable state to fall off into the true vacuum, one classical way and one quantum way. The first would occur via a huge energy boost, the 100 billion giga electron volts, whatever the fuck they're called, Hawking mentions, but Max says the universe already experienced such high energies during the period of inflation just after the Big Bang. Particles in cosmic rays from space also regularly collide with these kinds of high energies and yet the vacuum hasn't collapsed. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Imagine that somebody hands you a piece of paper and says this piece of paper has the potential to spontaneously combust. So you might be worried, Max says, but then they tell you 20 years ago it was in a, in a furnace. If it didn't combust in the furnace, it's not likely to combust it in your hand. Very good point. Probably a lot of worry about nothing. Of course, there's always the quantum world to consider, and that's where things always get weirder. In the quantum world, where the smallest of particles interact, it's possible for a particle on one side of a barrier to suddenly appear on the other side of the barrier without actually going through it. A phenomenon known as quantum tunneling. If our universe was in fact a metastable state, it could quantum tunnel through the barrier to the vacuum on the other side with no warning destroying everything in an instant, and while this is theoretically possible, predictions show that if it were to happen, it's not likely for billions of billions of years. But by then, the sun and the earth, and you and I, and Stephen Hawking, will be a distant memory, so it's probably not worth losing any sleep over. article also goes on to state that new physics not yet understood that makes our vacuum stable. Physicists know there are parts of the model missing, Mysteries like quantum gravity and dark matter and still still defy explanation. When two physicists published a paper determining the Higgs potential conundrum in March, their conclusion was that an explanation lies beyond the standard model. Not that the universe may collapse at any time. So there you go. So the Higgs boson is a interesting theory. Yeah, it's highly unlikely that it's going to destroy the planet. But at the same time, are we the first to necessarily have discovered it. While researching, I found another article by NASA on science.nasa.gov, which outlined a similar a similar story that it's entitled The Day the World Didn't End. 
which outlines a similar a similar theory that the discovery of the Higgs boson on in 2012 didn't destroy the world and it didn't have the consequences that a lot of people thought it was going to have. I mean, the opening statement is the world didn't end. Switching on the world's largest and most powerful particle accelerator near Geneva, Switzerland, did not trigger the creation of a microscopic black hole. And the black hole did not start rapidly sucking in surrounding matter faster and faster until it devoured the Earth. As sensationalist news reports had suggested it might. And I think that was the cause for concern that they were going to create a black hole on Earth. And that Earth was that black hole was going to suck the rest of the Earth into it. I think that's probably a bit more sci-fi physics than it was reality. But you never know. It still had the potential to happen, I guess. So... As Hawking has outlined, it's not really not worth worrying about because it doesn't generate enough power to do so. There was one thing that the article stated that was of particular interest that I'm going to quickly read. Once the Large Hadron Collider is running again and begins producing collisions, physicists will be ecstatic if it creates a tiny black hole. It will be the first experimental evidence to suggest an elegant an unproven and controversial theory of everything called string theory. In string theory, electrons, photons, quarks, and all the other fundamental particles are different vibrations of infinitesimal strings in ten dimensions, nine space dimensions, and one time dimension. The other six space dimensions are hidden by one explanation or another. For example, by being curled up on an extremely small scale, some physicists Trout string theory's mathematical elegance and its ability to integrate gravity with the other forces of nature. The widely accepted standard model of particle physics does not include gravity, which is one reason why it is not it does not predict that the Large Hadron Collider would create a gravitational collapsed point, a black hole, while string theory does. Many physicists have started to doubt whether string theory is true. But assuming for the moment that it is, what well, what would happen when a black hole is born inside the Large Hadron Collider? The surprising answer is not much. Even if a black hole survives for more than a fraction of a second, which it probably wouldn't, most likely it would be flung across out into, sp- into space. It would only have the mass of a hundred or so protons and would be moving at near the speed of light, so it would easily have escape velocity. Johnson explains because the tiny black hole would be less than a thousandth of the size of a proton and would have an exceedingly weak gravitational pull, it could easily zip through solid rock without ever touching or sucking in any matter. From the perspective of something this true, the atoms that make up solid rock appear to be almost certainly almost entirely empty space. The vast space between the atoms, nuclei, and other orbiting electrons. So a micro black hole could shoot down through the center of the Earth and out the other side without causing any damage, just as easily as it could shoot up through 300 feet of the Swiss countryside either way. It would end up out in the air, vacuum of space where it does, where the odds of it touching and sucking in any matter so that it could grow into a menace without being smaller still. Here's the question that will blow your mind. Did the Mayans know about the Higgs boson particle? Is this what they were counting down to? Was the Higgs boson discovery a countdown to our eventual doomsday? 
is this the doomsday the minds are referring or warning us about if you believe in the the Higgs boson Mayan doomsday prophecy? I think I just thought of a new Mayan doomsday prophecy. So when I refer to a, a, a new Mayan doomsday theory, I'm not so much talking about what happened in 2012. I'm more referring to were the Mayans predicting that there would be a discovery in the 20th century that would lead to our eventual demise. So it's not so not so much the end of the world per se, but the discovery that could lead to the end of the world. And given that the rate of technology and the eagerness of scientists and physicists to find new things to experiment with, is this an area of scientific discovery that should be just left alone? Are humans capable of understanding this level of physics and these particles at this stage? It only takes one wrong turn to cause a disaster. And given how many scientific experiments in the past have ended you know, in, in complete disaster because of one miscalculation, one step that wasn't taken... So when you, when you look back at it, did the Mayans know about quantum physics on a level that we are only just starting to understand today? Could this be a scientific explanation of Mayan mythology and to, a, and to another extent, Mayan technology? Because they had an understanding of space and time that is, that is far superior to our own. In my opinion, it's completely plausible that, that the Mayans understood quantum physics on a level that we just don't give them credit for. Could that have been what they were referring to in some of the mythology and some of these stories? Were they referring to quantum physics or astrophysics? On a related note, like I said in the first podcast about the spiritual realm, when the void was thin between our world and the other world, is that another explanation to quantum physics? Is that is that what the minds were trying to tell us? That they believed in this, this spirit realm that they believed in was indeed the quantum realm that physicists and scientists today are just starting to discover yeah and what if there are actually entities that live inside this realm this other dimension these interdimensional beings whatever you want to call them what if they do reside in this quantum realm and that they what if they're out there waiting to be discovered and what if cern and it stands to reason that cern is probably going to be the organization that that discovers them or has first contact with with these beings. Given how eager they are to do, conduct these experiments, chances to say that they could let something in from the other side that they that could appear friendly, but you know, might not come in peace. So a lot of those conspiracy theories revolving that revolve around CERN could come true. It's I don't think it's that far-fetched to to believe that that is a real possibility. They may unlock they may unlock a door that they wish they hadn't. Is this what the spiritual realm is, a quantum world we haven't fully discovered yet. Like always, I'll leave that up to you to decide. Just before I get off the Higgs boson topic, there's another article on LiveScience.com entitled Stephen Hawking Says God Particle Could Wipe Out the Universe by Kelly Dickerson. This is a pretty interesting article. I'll just quickly go through some of it. Stephen Hawking bet Gordon Kane $100 that physicists would not discover the Higgs boson. After losing that bet when physicists detected the particle in 2012, Hawking lamented the discovery, saying it made physics less interesting. 
Now in the preface to a new collection of essays and lectures called Starmus, the famous theoretical physicist is warning that the particle could one day be responsible for the destruction of the known universe. Hawking is not the only scientist who thinks so. The theory of the Higgs boson doomsday, where a quantum fluctuation creates a vacuum bubble that expands through space and wipes out the universe, has existed for a while. However, scientists don't think it could happen anytime soon. Most likely, it will take ten to it will take ten to the hundred years a one followed by one hundred zeros for this to happen. So probably you shouldn't sell your house and you should continue to pay your taxes. Joseph Lycan, a theoretical physicist at the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory in Batavia, Illinois, said during his lecture at the SETI Institute on September 2nd. On the other hand, it may already have happened. And that bubble might be on its way here now and you, do not, and you won't know because it's going at the speed of light. So there's n- there's not going to be anything, there's not going to be any warning. Higgs boson, sometimes referred to as the God Particle, much of the jargon of scientists who prefer the official name, is a tiny particle that researchers long suspected existed. Its discovery lends strong support to the standard model of particle physics, or the known rules of particle physics that scientists believe govern the basic building blocks of matter. The Higgs boson particle is so important to the standard model because it signals the existence of the Higgs field, an invisible energy field present throughout the universe that imbues other particles with mass. Since its discovery two years ago, the particle has been making waves in the physics community. Now scientists measured the particle's mass last year, they can make many other calculations, including one that seems to spell out the end of the universe. Universe Doomsday. The Higgs boson is about 126 billion electron volts, or about 126 times the mass of a proton. This turns out to be the precise mass needed to keep the universe on the brink of instability. But physicists say the delicate state will eventually collapse and the universe will become unstable. That conclusion involves the Higgs field. The Higgs field emerged at the birth of the universe and has acted as its own energy source ever since. Lycan said, physicists believe the Higgs field may be slowly charging as it tries to find an optimal balance of field strength and energy required to maintain that strength. Quote, just like matter can exist as liquid or solid, so the Higgs field, the substance that fills all space-time, could exist in two states. Gina Guidance, a theoretical physicist at CERN Lab, where the Higgs boson was discovered, explained during a TED Talk in October of 2013, Right now, the Higgs field is in a minimum potential energy state. Like a valley in a field of hills and valleys, the huge amount of energy required to charge into another state is like chugging up a hill. If the Higgs field makes it over that energy hill, some physicists think the destruction of the universe is waiting on the other side. But an unlikely quantum fluctuation or a charge change in energy could trigger a process called quantum tunneling. Instead of having to climb the energy hill, quantum tunneling would make it possible for the Higgs field to tunnel through the hill into the into the next even lower energy valley. This quantum fluctuation will happen somewhere out in the empty vacuum of space between galaxies and will create a bubble, Lycan said. 
Here's how Hawking described the Higgs boson scenario in the new book. The Higgs potential has the worrisome feature that it might become metastable at energies above 100 billion gigavolts. Giga electron volts. Correction. This could mean that the universe could undergo catastrophic vacuum decay with a bubble of the vacuum with a bubble of the true vacuum expanding at the speed of light. This could happen at any uh, at any time and we wouldn't see it coming. But using a calculation that involves the currently known mass of the Higgs boson, researchers predict this bubble would contain an ultra-strong Higgs field that would expand at the speed of light through space-time. The expansion would be unstoppable and would wipe out everything in the existing universe, Lycan said. I'm moan, taking that for a sec. How can they possibly know that? If there's no model to go on, isn't that just theoretical speculation? I mean, yeah... Chances are these scientists are probably, you know, 80-90% right, but there's always that unknown 10%. I mean, how, how, could, how do they really know and how can they really predict what's going to happen? Humans are, I mean, scientists are only really just starting to begin to understand these, the power of the universe and some of these particles. How, how do they really know if there isn't no data to go off of? It's like history and archaeology, it's all one person's theory versus another. Given that the science and medical fields change pretty quickly, like every four years, I think it's scientifically, you're pretty much out of date. Unlike a lot of other fields that kind of just stay the same. There'll probably be another discovery in a couple of years that makes this one obsolete or a they'll find another particle, make a breakthrough in technology and find out that this wasn't as powerful or unstable as they thought. Okay, back to the article. More interesting to us as physicists is when you do this calculation using the standard physics that we know about, it turns out we're right on the edge between a stable universe and an unstable universe, like I said. We're sort of right on the edge where the universe can go, can last for a long time, but eventually it should go boom. There's no principle that we know of that would put us right on the edge. Not all doom and gloom. Either all of space-time exists on the razor's edge between a stable and unstable universe, or the calculation is wrong, Lycan said. In my opinion, I think the calculation is probably pretty off. But however, if we're living on a razor's edge between stability and instability, who the fuck knows? There should be some energy left over in the universe from other galaxies that this has happened to. Surely we could pick energy or radio waves or something up throughout the universe Surely, like we would be able to get some type of visual evidence from any of the satellites or telescopes that that scan space. Back to it. If the calculation is wrong, it must come from a fundamental part of physics that scientists have not yet discovered. Yeah, scientists don't. You don't know everything yet. You haven't discovered everything. You haven't seen it all. If the calculation is wrong, it must come from a fundamental part of physics that scientists have not discovered yet. Lycan said one possibility is the existence of invisible dark matter. That Physicists believe make up about 20% of the universe. Discovering how dark matter interacts with the rest of the universe could reveal properties and rules physicists don't know about yet. The other is the idea of supersymmetry. In the standard model, every particle has a partner, or its own antiparticle, but supersymmetry is a theory that suggests every particle also has a supersymmetrical partner particle. The existence of all these other particles would help stabilize the universe, like I said. We found the Higgs boson, which 
was a big deal, but we are still trying to understand what it means, and we're also trying to understand all the other things that go along with it. This is very much the beginning of the story, and I've shown and I've shown you some directions that the story could go in, but I think there could be surprises that no one has even thought of, like and concludes in his lecture. That's probably a very good assumption to make. You know, I'm not a physicist or anything, but I think there is I think there's elements that they haven't found or haven't accounted for. I also think they don't know it all. I'm thinking they're only going by the information that they have. They are formulating ideas based on what we currently know about physics and space. There's a whole other element and dimension out there that we haven't discovered yet alone know anything about. So scientists try their best to understand things that I think let's face it, they don't really understand themselves. They're trying to categorize elements and particles and basically the whole chaos of the universe into quantifiable portions that are easily digestible. I don't really think they have the full picture, even if a lot of them pretend to. Yes, these people are smart, they're not you know, dullards by any they're not dumbasses by any means, but we don't know it all. There's lucky like that's like the end of the article said. There's probably a whole world out there they haven't even discovered yet. Okay, so let's move on. Higgs boson recap. So as I said before, did the Mayans know about the Higgs boson particle? Did ancient cultures know about quantum mechanics and astrophysics better than we do? Is that what their mythology and their stories are trying to convey to us? This quantum realm in the ancient context is spirituality the same thing as the quantum realm? Are spirituality and the quantum realm intrinsically linked with each other? Is this what the ancients understood spirituality to be, this quantum realm, and vice versa? So we look at this quantum realm as purely scientific, but did our ancestors look at the quantum realm as completely spiritual? Do they Did they understand the quantum realm on a deeper and more mature level than than how we currently perceive it. Okay, let's come out of the quantum realm. It's time to move along. Now we come to the Mars and Venus connection. So we know that the Mayans were keen astronomers. They tracked the movements of the planets and watched the skies with much enthusiasm. The Mayans believed that the planets were the gods, in a sense, Earth being fixed in its position in the universe, when the planets rotated and moved through the night skies, the Mayans saw this as the gods moving throughout the heavens, the Earth, the underworld, and the celestial and spirit realms. Hence the need to track the planets. The movement of the planets were so important to daily Maya life that events such as a king claiming the throne, social events, festivals, etc., and even when to go to war were basically all dictated by the movement of planets, Venus in particular. So a lot of Mayan mythology takes into consideration the planets. The Mayans saw the movements of the planets as the literal movements of the gods, such as Kukulkan moving across the sky. He would usually rise, I think the story goes, uh, Kukulkan resided on Venus and he would... In the morning, he would move across the sky, descending to the underworld at night, resurface again in the morning. Mind mythology and astronomy are very closely tied together. Like a majority of these ancient cultures, the Mayans attributed the planets 
with deities. Mind mythology has a lot of connection with celestial movements and patterns. The story of the sun and the moon are told via this method of mythology. The Popol Vuh, the Mayan Book of Truth, the Mayan Holy Book. In other words, it's seen as the Mayan Bible. The Popol Vuh tells of the sun god, Knuchahu, who is one of the most powerful and revered gods of the Mayan pantheon. He is also directly connected to the Mayan supreme being Itzamana, the father of the universe. He shines brightly in the sky during the day, watching over the world. And at night, he transforms into a great jaguar so he can cross over into the underworld to rise again in the morning. The moon was just as important as the sun. The moon was seen as a goddess named Ixchiel. I probably murdered that translation, but moving along. She was the goddess of fertility and death. The moon and the sun didn't get along very well. Each night the moon chased away the sun. She is depicted as a young beautiful maiden or as an old woman. Much like the sun, the moon is also depicted as an animal. In this case, the moon transforms into a rabbit. <laughs> I think I would much prefer the jaguar. I love the dualistic nature of Mayan and ancient mythology. I think this is just a, a real beautiful and genius way to tell and pass these stories down to generation to generation. There is a place for everything and an order to things in mythology. Everything from the sun, the moon, the seasons, the weather follows a specific pattern. This is what makes the, the minds so brilliant was their ability to track and plan for these continuous cycles and to intertwine this with their mythology. Genius in the sense that you would never forget it. It will always be remembered if it was part of mythology and part of storytelling. By doing this, you can never really lose or forget why you were tracking these planets. It'd be, it'd be a pretty big offense if you were not to track the movements of Mars and upset one of the gods in the process. You know, this would have been a you know, big no-no in, in ancient times. It's also a very original and beautiful way of telling a story. Even though to the to the minds this was a hundred percent real, and I think there's a lot of validity and a lot of truth in mythology. It's not all myth. All myth is based on some truth, and I think there's a great deal of these ancient stories that are a hundred percent true. I'll get more into that in a later show, but it's just a really brilliant and beautiful way to tell these stories across multiple generations. So this is what makes the Mind so brilliant was their ability to track and plan for these continuous cycles from the day to day crop planting to the prediction of future events. Ancient cultures had this balance of the spiritual and the physical. Today, we've lost touch with this side. Today, we look at this as magic or just a good story. We just take these stories as fiction pretty much, and we just think of our ancestors. Well, they had nothing better to do that than than to make up a bunch of stories because life wasn't hard or busy enough. Which I think is very disrespectful of these cultures because they're fucking smarter than what we are. They've endured far more hardships and we just rule their whole belief system off as inferior because their concept of mythology goes against our current belief system, which is, for an example, is the Judaic Christian 
belief system that is the belief in the one true God. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. If that's what you choose to believe, that's your prerogative. I'm just saying we shouldn't be so arrogant to completely rule out some validity and truth to our ancestors. Show them the respect that you would want someone to show to your beliefs. So the question I ask, these weren't just stories to them. It was as real as our materialistic consumerism-driven bullshit that we call the modern world. Our ancestors weren't dumb fucks. We, especially historians and archaeologists, are always trying to explain or make an argument that our ancestors must have thought this way, or, oh, this is what they really meant to do, or this is what they really meant by this story. This story is just meant to tell, tell the tale of the sun and the moon. I call bullshit on this. Like, as I previously mentioned, this is disrespectful to our ancestors who, let's face it, were a lot smarter than us. They built stone pyramids that will outlast time. I mean, we make iPhones and petroleum-based products that need replacing every two years. Yeah, there's obviously a an economic and a consumer-driven desire behind this. It's also a very, in my opinion, a very evil business practice is to make a product that could be better just to have a customer base come back year after year and pay their hard-earned money to get another product that, let's, let's face it, isn't really that great to begin with and isn't really a step up from the last model. Yeah, I'm referring to Samsungs and iPhones and basically all these technological gadgets that, that govern our lives. You know, in most cases, most of these products that we consume from plastic bags to clothing to to the useless knickknacks we have around the house in most cases just end up in the ocean anyway i think our ancestors had knowledge that we have lost i think this is pretty obvious over the course of history i mean just look at the middle ages one explanation i'm going to throw out there is maybe they were describing aliens could ets be the ancient gods could they be interdimensional beings that we haven't even begun to understand or even identify yet are they spiritual beings or do they come from some other dimension? The problem today is we have taken the spirituality out of religion and belief and replaced it with 20th century science. Think about it. Okay, back to Mars and Venus. Got on a bit of a tangent there. There are two planets that the Mayans were more interested in than most. The Mayans knew about Jupiter and Saturn, etc. But they were most interested in Mars and Venus. So why is that? Venus in particular was closely observed, it played an important role in warfare, and depending on its position in the sky would also determine the sacrificing of enemy captives. Pretty fucked, but that's the importance that this planet had on a specific branch of culture, namely this being warfare. It's also curious to note too that Venus and Mars played a huge part in many other ancient cultures. I know Venus and Mars had a huge role in uh, Roman religion. Mars was a Roman god of war, so there's a bit of a connection between these two planets. And why is it that these two planets are associated with war? Very curious. The Mayans had also figured out Venus's rotation of the sun, taking a 584-day cycle to complete. Venus also had its own calendar that tracked Venus's movements. I think that's pretty obvi obvious in the title. Venus also had a very important role in crop planting. 
especially in the planting of ma in the in especially in the planting of the maize harvest maize or corn was essential to the mesoamerican diet and or the the backbone crop of the mesoamerican people venus was also hugely important to the aztecs they believe quetzalcoatl resided on venus and traveled across the sky and to the underworld much like much like in mayan mythology the venus cycle was broken down into two separate cycles consisting of a, of four stages the first being when Venus appears as a morning star, the orbital period of 584 days. Venus stays visible for 236 days before it enters its invisible period during the final the final 60 days or so. I just so happen to have a copy of the Popol Vuh, the definitive edition of the Mayan book of the dawn of life and the glories of gods and kings translated by dennis tedlock so this is on page 206 this refers to the venus calendar the mayan venus calendar is best known from a table in the dresden codex but the presence of venus reckoning in the guatemalan highlands is attested by the popol vuh and by the kichi almanac dating from 1722 a given venus synodic period lasting 584 days is divided into four stages, with Venus appearing as the morning star at the beginning of the first stage and remaining visible throughout it. 236 days of a eight synodic moons. During the second stage, 90 days, Venus goes through its last 27 days, one side real moon, as the morning star, disappears for 50 days and runs through its first 13 days as the evening star. It remains visible as the evening star as throughout the third period, 250 days, and stays out of sight throughout the fourth period, 8 days, after which it returns to the first stage. During a given 584-day period, the 20-day names repeat 29 times, giving 580 days with a reminder of 4, with a remainder of 4. This means that a new Venus cycle will always begin four days later in the sequence of 20-day names than the previous cycle. And since 20 is evenly divisible by 4, 20 divided by 4 equals 5, only five of the four-day names can, either, can ever begin a Venus cycle. In the Dresden Codex, the chosen days here given their Kichi names were Unup, Cat, Quinnel, E, and... Ajmak, followed by Yonup again, starting from one Yonup as the Dresden Codex does, and remaining through, and running through five complete periods, so as to show all the possible day names. The beginning dates for the four stages within each Venus period work out as follows: appears as a morning star, one Yonup, one Yonup, thirteen Cat, twelve Quinnel, eleven E, ten Yamak. 10. Ajmak becomes invisible, appears as evening star. 3. Amjak to Yanup. 1. Cat. 13. Quinnel. 12. E. Evening star appears as a morning star. 1. Yunup. 1. Yanup. 13. Cat. 12. Quinnel. 11. E. 10. Ajmak becomes invisible. 3. Ajmak to Yunup. 1. Cat. 13. Quinnel. 12e appears as an evening star 2 came 1 
Sis, 13, Ox, 12, Tyjack, 11, Ick, Becomes Invisible, 5, Amnyak, 4, Yonup, 3, Cat, 2, Quinell, 1, E. After 5 complete cycles totaling 2,920 days, the movements of Venus fill 8 idealized years of 365 days each and come within hours of spanning 99 lunations. At this point, Venus begins repeating the same series of period beginning day names but with different numbers, while at the same time coming very close to repeating its relationship to the fixed stars and the seasons of the solar year. To get back to a morning appearance on one unup, Venus must repeat the full set of five periods at total periods a total of 13 times. In the Popol Vuh, the divine names 1 and 7 Hanapi and 1 and 7 Death, also known as Came, point directly to the Venus calendar and specifically to the first of the five periods charted above. Andreas Zolich pointed out that com combining the third combining the numbers 1 and 7 with a given day name is a, is a conventional way of indicating all 13 days bearing that name the reason is that when one traces a single day name through all its occurrences in a given 260 day cycle the accompanying numbers fall out in a sequence of 1 8 2 9 3 10 4 11 5 12 6 13 and 7 this means that if the divine names in question here refer to the astronomical events, these should be the events whose day names remain constant, but whose day numbers are variable, which is indeed the case. The bowl game 1 and 7 Hanapi play on their court corresponds to the appearance of Venus as the morning star on a day that bears their name. Their death by sacrifice at the court of 1 and 7 death corresponds to the appearance of the evening star on a, on a day named Kame, and the eventual resurrection of seven Hanapi by Hanapi and Zablecki correspond to the return of the morning star to its original day name. Just as there are five kinds of Venus period, so there are fivefold reoccurrences in their story, the most obvious of these being the five test houses where Hanapi and Zablocki spend a night in the underworld. Holy fucking shit, that is confusing. That is a little demonstration of Mayan mythology and astronomy combined. The story of one and seven Hanapi is a classical classical Maya tale that relates to the hero twins that go on a journey to the underworld to best a foe or to find someone. It's interesting story. Mayan mythology is very complex and very layered, to say the least. It's also very confusing in some parts. Reading the stars was an essential part of Mayan culture and daily life. So we're going to read a bit from The Lost History of Aztec and Maya. This is a fantastic book on Mayan and Aztec culture. It's by Charles Phillips and Dr. David M. Jones. If you're interested at all in Mayan and Aztec culture, this book is a must-have. There's a, a series of these books that relate to different topics, but this one is a basically a fantastic general guide to pretty much everything Aztec and Mayan. This is on page 128, Universal Forces. This 
describe some of the orbital and celestial events and why the Mayans were so eager to read the stars. It also goes on to talk about the phases of Venus and Maya observatories, as they were keen astronomers. I'm not going to read the whole thing, because I think I've done enough of that already. There's a couple of key points. In Mesoamerican latitudes, Venus shines brightly in the morning sky, as large as a tennis ball. The planet assumed an important role in religion and mythology. Venus follows a near-circular orbit around the Sun. One orbit takes 225 days. Like the Moon, Venus goes through a number of phases. One cycle of phases takes 584 days. The Mesoamerican astronomers knew about this because they had measured it from observatory towers such as the ones in the Maya cities of Mayapan and Chichen Itza. They knew that Venus goes through four phases. It rises first in the morning sky and is visible as the morning star for 236 days. Thereafter, it disappears into the light of the sun and is lost to sight for 90 days. At the end of this period, it, it rises in the evening sky and is visible as the evening star for 250 days. In its fourth phase, it is invisible for eight days before reappearing as the morning star. There's also an interesting side note from this page titled Universal Forces that connects to what I was saying before about harmonic convergence. Just as the priests understood the pattern of days and weeks in the ritual and solar calendars to be full of divine energy and meaning, they so they saw the orbits and phases of planets and the movements of stars to be a manifestation of universal forces that impacted upon the lives of men. The movements of the planet Venus were considered of great importance. In Mesoamerican latitudes, Venus shines brightly. Phases of Venus. The Maya associated the invisible phase of, of Venus when the planet disappears from view with voyages to the spirit realm of the underworld. Quetzalcoatl's descent to the underworld to claim the bones of the fishmen the people of a previous world age was understood to take place during the eight-day phase when Venus is invisible. When Quetzalcoatl returned successfully from his task, he rose into the heavens as the morning star. Every Maya ruler was thought to travel the underworld after death, and if he passed successfully through the trials he encountered there, would rise into the skies as Venus. In another tradition, Quetzalcoatl tops Leon overcome the shame after being outwitted by his dark double Tezcatlipoca and brought to sleep with his sisters takes his own life on a blazing pyre from the flames his heart rises as the Venus as Venus the morning star the appearance of Venus as the morning star would appear to be a reminder of the king's immortality and a celebration of the victory of Quetzalcoatl over the lords of the spirit realm and over death Venus did not generally have positive associations in the Mesoamerican mind. The planet was believed to have a negative influence on earthly affairs. So that kind of goes with what I was saying before about harmonic convergence, that an otherworldly energy can have a negative effect on humans. I find it very curious that the ancient Mayans knew about these energies, and that it was a widely accepted part of Mesoamerican mythology. And also, like that last passage said, 
a lot of the major Mayan cities such as Mayapan and Chichen Itza, as well as many other Maya cities had observatories which tracked Venus and the other planets' movements. Another curious piece of information, some of these cities had aligned certain buildings to be adjacent with the pathway of Venus so and the night sky, so you could you could clearly observe the heavens from the comfort of your own living room. Or if you were lucky enough, whatever building you happened to be in at the time. So the observatories is if you've ever Googled or even been to some of these sites and seeing some of the observatories that the Mayans built, they are eerily similar to modern-day observatories. So much so, they the shape of the of the main dome is exactly the same as it is in the modern day. Uh, granted, I don't think it rotates and opens up as mechanically as the ones that we have, but aesthetically, they're pretty much the same. So. I found a contradictory article on nationalgeographic.com that was pretty interesting. It's entitled, Have We Been Misreading a Crucial Maya Codex for Centuries? A new look at the Dresden Codex may change our understanding of the ways the Maya used the night sky to plan the ceremonial calendars. By Eric Vance, published 23rd of August 2016. To the modern stargazer, the planet Venus is just another point of light in the night sky. But for the ancient Maya, the brilliant light of Venus was an omen of war that guided ritual activity, prompted great battles, and was even used as a shorthand for total destruction. Keep in mind that last bit total destruction that will come into play a bit later. Archaeologists have long looked to Venus to understand Maya calendars and tradition, but now a fresh look at the ancient text called the Dresden Codex suggests that the understanding of the of how the Maya tracked Venus for their celestial calendar calendars may be all wrong. Uh oh. But combining a new reading of the text, tricky mathematical equations and field observations, Gerardo Alanda at the University of California, Santa Barbara, has simplified the way Maya scribes would have corrected their calendars. There is some really elegant math that's going on there that has not been recognized before, says Aldana. His work not only casts new light on how the Maya tied their ceremonies to the sky, it may also call into question every date we have for events in the ancient Maya world. Hmm, interesting. Celestial fix. Scientists have long known that ancient... Mesoamerican cultures were fascinated with the night sky, but many details of how they tracked celestial objects were lost to the ravages of time and conquest. The Dresden Codex, named for the European city in which it had been housed since the mid-1700s, is one of four texts remaining out of thousands that existed before Europeans arrived in the New World. Fucking Cortes, once again. Like many of the precious books, the Dresden Codex has been examined and re-examined countless times by archaeologists and other experts skilled in deciphering ancient texts. A favorite section has been been the so-called Venus Tables, which provided ancient stargazers with the correction tool for their calendars. Ancient Mesoamericans used two interlocking, interlocking yet unrelated calendar cycles, the 360s 65-day solar calendar called the Hub 
tracked the movement of the sun, while a second ceremonial one called the Zolkan followed a 260-day track linked to ceremonies and celebrations. Think of it like the days of the week, if a week lasted 260 days and each day had its own cultural significance. However, since the actual solar year is 365.25 days long, the Maya had to correct for the extra quarter day. Just as we do by adding a leap year days to the calendar every four years. To make their corrections, the Maya used the planet Venus. Looking through their ancient texts, they could tell where Venus was on a particular day hundreds of years before. And thus, where it should have been at the time someone looked in the sky. The difference was the amount of correction necessary. But it's not as easy as that. For more than a hundred years, experts have reconstructed the equations the Maya would have used, based partly on the Dresden Codex. What they landed on is a complex series of patches and changes that create a hyper-precise calendar system similar to our own. Aldana's latest work has thrown the picture into question. An engineer as well as an archaeologist, he drove into the text. He dove into the text and reinterpreted a single word, Cal. Little Superman... Man of Steel connection there. Which had been assumed to mean to tie or bind. To mean to enclose. The small shift changed how the math might have been done. His version is simpler than the previous interpretations, but it creates a calendar that that's less accurate. Venus. Warrior planet? Aldana says this new reading suggests the Maya were less concerned about Precision and more concerned with preserving their 260-day ceremonial calendar. He compares it to the Catholic Church's struggle in the 16th century to create an accurate calendar to guide Easter celebrations. Efforts which ultimately gave us the Gregorian calendar still in use today. Their ability to predict the stars' positions was affecting their ability to plan their religious events. He says, His work thus moves Maya stargazing, more into the realm of star-sponsored ritual of large-scale ceremony. It's no small thing since for decades the Maya have been popularly known as precision astronomers. He used the sky to predict the future and they were not only Mesoamericans who tracked things like Venus. Venus's imagery goes back to pre-classic and even the Olmec have a Venus symbol, says archaeologist Francisco Estrada Bella of Boston University. Referring to the parent civilization of of several Mesoamerican cultures, alleged parent civilization, I may add. For instance, Teotihuacan, a massive ancient city near today's Mexico City, was a contemporary of the classic Maya Empire, AD 250-900. And experts have suggested that its three major structures were laid out to conform with the cycles of the Sun, the Moon, and Venus. Archaeologists have even long wondered if the Maya, the Mexar, and the people of Teotihuacan shared a Venus-related warrior cult in which the planet's movements guided military strategy. Venus seems to have played a role in long-held rivalry between the two signature, signature powers of the classic Maya, Tikal and Kunal. The Snake Dynasty, some say the earliest definitive battle in April of the year 562, may have been timed in accordance with Venus. At the very least, the planet has an ominous sign, 
When one army completely demolished another, as the snakes did to Takal that day, scribes would describe the victory by adding a symbol for Venus to indicate total destruction. But if Aldana is correct, we might have to change the dates for such epic clashes, because the, cal the calendar and ours might now be out of sync. Hmm, very interesting. That kind of throws a whole new set of problems on top of an already overly complicated subject. So in the final part of this article, entitled Universal Language, Harvey Bricker, an emeritus professor at Toulon University, agrees that the Maya cor corrected the calendars by tracking Venus and that the calendars had ceremonial purposes. But he sees no reason that they would have favoured the ceremonial calendar. He also cautions against tweaking the existing Maya calendar until there is stronger evidence that we require such a change. The fact that a current system of correction is used by others is n is not because it is popular, but rather because there is solid historical and astronomical evidence that it is the correct one. He writes in an email, failure to use it is a fatal flaw in Dr. Aldana's research. Aldana says his work doesn't have to affect any established dates. That's only a possibility. For him, the most thrilling part of the work had nothing to do with its interpretation, but rather with the cold, hard math. As he worked on the Dresden Codex, he felt a kinship with the ancient unnamed scholar who was wrestling with the same equations. Understanding the math, he says, helped him understand the people. It's the journey of math that you are speaking through, he says, and that's just really profound. Yeah, that is mind-bogglingly confusing. I'll have to give it to Mr. Aldana. He tackled a subject that was already complex. I mean, the numbers and the math just make my head hurt thinking about it. Yeah, once again, it's it's not really my strong suit, but yeah, good on him for looking at it in a, in a different light and seeing if the these dates are in fact correct. And you know, maybe we have archaeologists haven't been looking at this thing, haven't been looking at these dates in a correct light. I mean, archaeologists, after all, aren't mathematicians, and there's a complex degree of mathematics that goes into the into some of the translations and to some of the well, the science of the Mayan calendar. So that kind of demonstrates, if you look at things in a new light, it throws a whole new set of problems on it. Um, yeah, and is it should we be looking at it as the the last guy said? So yeah, it's that brings up a whole new set of problems. Especially, that brings up a whole new set of problems for the calendar and for Venus. <clears throat> so, should we really be looking at it like that? That's you know what we have to be asking ourselves. And like Mr. Bricker said in the end of that article, can we make these judgments based on the information we have? And should we be, you know, putting this not this set of problems onto a subject that we don't really have all the information for? Like Mr. Bricker said, that we have to be cautious about looking into this too precisely and adjusting all these dates, because what if the information is wrong? Like he said, if um, Mr. Aldana's research is off, he said that that fatal flaw is in his research is that we may not have all the information. Yeah, it's good that we're looking at it in a different light, but at the same time, it's also it also brings up a whole new set of problems. Like he said, he, it helped him understand the people, but 
yes, Mr. Aldana could be right, but I think Mr. Bricker also has a point that we need more information about it before we can make these assumptions and judgments to an already ridiculously fucking complex calendar system. And yet, you have to assume that everything you find or read has at least a 10% inaccuracy or flaw to it somehow. But that's probably the most accurate you can get. You have to assume that the original creators of of it knew what they were doing and therefore did their job correctly. I mean, they had enough to do and if you fucked up in those days, you could have been killed. Okay, so that's the end of Venus. So let's move along to our final section, Mars. So as I outlined before, Mars was the Mars was another very important planet. Venus being the most important planet, Mars takes second place. However, Mars we got to look at a little differently to Venus. There's a very very interesting well, I find interesting anyway, part of the Popol Vuh that describes the Mars beasts. Yep, I'll say it again, the Mars beasts. And if you listen to this podcast, you probably know which way I'm going to go. So the Mars beasts, on page 43 to 45 of the Dresden Codex, as outlined in the article, the Dresden Codex is one of the few surviving Mayan books from the pre-Columbian era that resides in one of the four cities that they reside in today, Dresden, Germany, Paris, Madrid, and Mexico City. These books are basically crucial to understanding Mayan culture. They There's apparently thousands of these books. A, lot, a majority of them were burnt by the Spanish when Cortes arrived. So the precious information remaining in the few books that are still around need to be taken, need to be treated like cultural gold which which they are because they the, these books are irreplaceable where they're still being translated today and they are very beautifully decorated so pages 43 and 45 mention something i find very interesting the text is called the mars table and mentions the mars beasts that's right the mars beasts hold the fucking presses the mars beasts um, aliens, anybody? When I think of Mars beasts, that's the first thing I think of is aliens. Or it could also be interdimensional or demonic beings. Who really knows? So, Mars beasts. This is probably the most interesting thing I've found while doing the research for this show. The Mars beasts. Um, I've heard similar things to this while researching the Mayans and Aztecs over the years, but it's the first time I've actually focused on... Mars Beast specifically, I thought it was really fascinating. So much so that I found an article by Michael John Finley. This article goes on to uh, explain the Mars table. The website is bibliotecopledes.net. I think I'm saying that right. The article is entitled The Mars Beast Table by Michael John Finley. It's published in 2002. It's a very interesting article. I know I've used a lot of articles in this show already, but this one needed to be included. So this explains the Mars Beast table and specifically the Mars Beast. It goes on to say that in 1924, R.W. Wilson suggested that pages 43 and 45 of the Dresden Codex contain a table tracking the motions of Mars. That's pretty straightforward. There's nothing too out there about that. 
Across the middle of these pages runs a almanac that contains through 780 days, which is very close to the synodic period of the planet. Once again, this is that alignment of the cosmos, the cycles. Astronomical context is also suggested by the illustrations accompanying the almanac. Four images of a peculiar beast hang from a sky band, a symbol of a ecliptic in the codex. Now it starts to get a bit more interesting. The creature has come to be known as the Mars Beast. Wilson's hypothesis was based on the same logic that led to the discovery of the eclipse and Venus tables in the codex. In all three cases, the subject matter was initially guessed because the numbers in the table approximate astronomical cycles. However, the putative Mars table was not as readily accepted as the eclipse and Venus tables. Right, so stands the reason this guy knows what he's talking about. He's discovered the patterns in the codex before. So stands the reason that he probably has a good foundation of knowledge to work on and make a an estimation or a guess at to what this what this table was trying to tell us. Alright, so we, now we come down to the interesting part, the Mars beast. Seller identified the Mars beast as a wild pig, Pecari. It also appears in an illustration in the Madrid Codex with a razorback of a hog. Thompson preferred to identify the beast as a fantastic deer. He thought it resembled the patron of the month, Sip, during which deer hunting rituals were held. Okay, both make sense in, in the given context, I guess. In any event, the species of the beast does not help to guess his role in the Codex or suggest any other connection with Mars. The almanac is divided into 1078-day intervals. As J. Eric Thompson noted, these divisions have no clear astronomical meaning. The total of 780 days in three 260-day Sulcan titles, Sulcan cycles. Thompson believed that the Mars table was merely a long Zulcan almanac with no astronomical significance. The Mars table hypothesis was revised in 1976 by David Kelly. In 1986, Victoria... Victoria and Harvey Bricker pointed out that Mars undergoes retrograde motion, which reverses its path along the ecliptic for about 75 days each synodic revolution. Okay, fair enough. They suggested that the scribes who composed the table book 78 days, one length of the synodic period, as an idealized value of the, Mar of the time Mars is retrograde. In addition, the Brickers, working with Anthony Avini, have recently shown that the Codex likely contains a second Mars table, pages 69-74, which is concerned with the sidereal motion of the planet. The Mars table hypothesis is now widely accepted, though some students of the Codices remain unconvinced. Bruce Love attempted to reopen the debate in 1995, suggesting that the table is an, is an agricultural and weather almanac. His argument was continued in a reply by the Bickers in the same journal in 1997. Okay, very interesting. If you want my opinion, it was aliens. It refers to extraterrestrials that lived on Mars. Sounds out there, but I think it's entirely possible. It's an entirely plausible theory. It's just once you break down your own limitations of Oh, that, could, that couldn't be possible. Mars was a dead planet. Yeah, well, Mars was once a very living, thriving planet millions, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years ago. 
Anyway, moving along. The Maya Mars. Thompson thought it significant that Wilson advanced his Mars table hypotheses at a time when every Maya record was believed to have held an astronomical meaning. That's a good point. Everything's connected to astronomy with a lot of the mythology and a lot of the codices. So why would the Mars table be any different? Why would they go to the trouble of tracking Venus, coming up with a calendar for Venus, tracking the planets and all these astronomical events, and leave out Mars? Why would Mars have no meaning when everything else, astronomic-wise, astronomically, has a very specific and very, very grounded meaning in mind mythology and mind culture. I don't know, it doesn't quite make sense to me. Let's move along. The implication was fair enough. The search for astronomical material in the codices that followed Fosterman's discovery of the Venus table led to some absurd theorizing. Spinden was convinced that pages 43b and 45b were concerned with Jupiter. Maximon thought they treated equinoxes and solstices another table containing multiples of 78 was related to saturn by spinden and the mars and to mars by wilson and mackerson thompson also doubted that mars attracted the scribes attention because there was little evidence when he wrote that the maya were interested in any other planet than venus while venus figures importantly in mesoamerican mythology maya Mars is not from post-conquest mythological sources. However, we know now that Mars referred to, though obliquely, in inscriptions of the casual period. Yeah, so there's no way we can ever know if they referred to Mars before the Spanish conquest. That's the problem. All this information is based on the remaining material post-conquest. We have no idea what what they really meant or how many of these codices or codexes there actually were. There could have been thousands of them that have, were all destroyed by the Spanish. So I think it's a bit arrogant to make assumptions based on a limited amount of evidence that we have. Yeah, fair enough, these guys can only make assumptions based on the evidence they have. But at the same time, they have to have that... They have to have an open mind that there might be more things discovered... And there's a lot of information lost that we will never ever know about. And that is really the, probably the most heartbreaking thing about conquest is these, these fascinating cultures are, history is basically erased by these religious zealots who think how they live is backwards or barbaric to how they live their enlightened and barbaric lives. So let's get a bit off topic. So let's get into it again. Perhaps the most remarkable example of the ritual use of planetary events is the Record of the dedication ceremonies of a group of the cross at Palenque. The rituals fell within a four-day period commencing 9th to 12th, 18.5.16 to Kib, 14 mole. In other words, July 23rd, 690 AD. At this time, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn and the Moon were separated by intervals of less than five degrees right this comes back to a significant planetary alignment so we don't just have the sun and the moon we've got mars jupiter saturn and the moon all lining up within to five degrees that's a pretty significant astronomical event according to dutton and avini on the 23rd of july 1690 ad all four planets were close together a quadruple conjection in the same constellation 
Scorpio, and they must have made quite a spectacle with bright red Antrius shining, but a few degrees south of the group as they straddle the high rise, the high ridge that forms the southern horizon at Palenque. The night before, the moon would have been just at the western end of the planetary lineup. The inscriptions of the cross group begin with an account of creation and the birth of the first mother and the first father and their sons, the gods of Palenque, the gods of the Palenque triad. Seashul and Friedel suggested that the alignment was interpreted as the reuniting, reuniting of first mother the moon and her three sons. No Mesoamerican deity can be called the Mars god, but it is likely that the planet was regarded as a manifestation of Wei, also known as a spirit companion, of various deities. These inscriptions of the cross group refer to the planets in conjunction as spirit companies of the triad deities. The primary identification of these gods is with Venus and the Sun, but this would not have prevented them from manifesting as Mars, Jupiter, or, or Saturn. Familiarity with the Maya calendar is a prerequisite is a prerequisite to a proper understanding of the Mars table. For an introduction to the table, I hope this isn't getting too boring, but I feel a lot of this information is necessary to better understand the Mayans and the calendar, and now the Mars beasts. Alright, so plowing ahead. Structure of the Mars table. The Mars almanac runs across the middle registers of pages 43 to 45, usually designated 43 B and 45B. The table proper begins on the right edge of the page, 44B, where the Mars beast is illustrated for the first time. Below the beast, the number 19 is painted in black. The Zulkan almanacs in the codices, black numbers usually indicate that the court of the days between Zulkan dates, the stations of the almanac marking aguaries or rit rituals, there are three similar columns on page okay so this article just goes down to outline how these tables are structured and how they look i'll leave a link to this on the facebook page so you can get a better look at it yourself i don't think there's much more point of me explaining the rest of it without without having some sort of visual reference to go to go with it there's a a interesting part towards the end of the end of the End of that end of this section, the structure of the Mars table, entitled the Mars Beast Table Online. The Mars table accompanies the middle registry of pages 43 and 45 of the Dresden Codex, and we'll explain that a little a little bit better. So moving along towards the bottom of that page, it also has the long count entry date. Basically, explains the um, calendar entry and what it looks what it looks like on the Mayan calendar. And the glyphs associated with Mars. This entry date may have calculated. Yeah, it also goes on to theorize that the corresponding base date on page 43b and the multiples of 780 might have might have been calculated by subtracting multiples of 780-day Mars period for a later base table. But you can read all that yourself. Goes on to out to go into a bit more detail about retrograde motion and stationary points which I'll go through just the first part of that retrograde motion and stationary points All right this part just goes over what retrograde motion is as I'm not really familiar, familiar with that myself 
The Earth orbits the Sun more rapidly than other planets. As Earth passes the outer planet, the planet appears to reverse its motion along the ecliptic, a phenomenon known as retrograde motion. At the time when motion begins to reverse, the planet's position on the ecliptic appears to freeze for a time. This is called the first stationary point. At the end of the period, the retrograde motion of the planet appears to stop again. This is the second stationary point. The Brickers noted that the average period of retrograde motion of Mars is about 75 days. They suggested that the scribes may have retrograde 78 day one-tenth of the Mars period as an idealized value of the period of retrograde motion. A similar modification of observation occurs in the Venus table, where the lengths of apparitions of the planet are contrived to keep the rising and setting of the Zulcan dates with ritual significance. Because of difficulty in determining the instant at which a stationary point is reached, the three-day error hypothesized by the Brickers is not observationally significant. The synodic period of the synodic period of a planet is its apparent period of revolution with respect to the Sun as seen from Earth, or the time between identical configurations of the Earth, Sun, and the planet. The the synodic period of Mars can be counted at the same time between successive episodes of retrograde motion. The sidereal period of a planet is the true period of revolution about the Sun. 28th of March 1818 AD is in fact closer to the first stationary point to any other significant event in Mars's synodic period. It is not close enough, however, to have produced predictions of retrograde motions with the limits of observational error. Okay, the final part of the page has a little article titled has a paragraph called Ritual and Augury. It is likely that the Mars table was used to time rituals and make auguries. But because little known is about the role of Mars in Maya myth, ritual and augury, the details are far from certain. The text in the almanac seem to be augurial and have no and have some features in common with the text hierarchical rise of venus each block of text above an image of the mars beast begins with an identical phrase consisting of a verb and the mars beast glyph the main sign of a verb is an is an axe pictograph read from a context in the inscription as axed decapitated or damaged or damaged a plausible translation is shuck in this inscription as axe verb is followed by the name of the person, usually a sacrificial victim, who is axed. This suggests that the phrase should be translated as was axed, damaged, sacrificed, etc., the Mars beast. Perhaps this refers to retrograde motion of the planet. The rest of each text block appears to contain auguries. Okay, so that is a fascinating article. So as I mentioned before, I have a copy of the Popol Vuh and I also f I found a couple of references to the Mars Beasts in that which gives a slightly different description to what a Mars Beast is. Right, so this is on page 208 of the Popol Vuh translated by Dennis Tedlock. This reference refers to, to Mars, it also connect, it's connects to what I was saying about Venus, it's found in the same couple of pages so pages 205 to 209 outline the whole Mayan calendar and how it's supposed to be read and these tables. If you want to get more information, I suggest getting a copy of it. It's a very interesting and complex read. 
Okay, so a key point I found on this page, he talks about Mars, about the planetary possibilities of Mars and the synodic period of 783 times 260 days is reflected in the Mars table in the Dresden Codex as, uh, as was outlined in the previous article. The table reflects extreme variability of Mars from a period, from one period to the next, using this one day as a focal point at the near end of a 63-day range of possibilities of a helical rise of the planet. Uh, so what, I won't read the whole thing, but there's a very interesting paragraph I'm about to read. It would appear then that the Mars table used by the Kichi must have been, must have had the later date as its anchor. If so, we may imagine that the animals illustrated in this table were not the Mars beasts of the Dresden Codex, which have the snouts of reptiles and the legs of Picaris, which I think in the, is, a, is a pig. But rather, the monkeys of the Popolvu narrative, the interpretation is supported by a kitschy myth recorded among the contemporary Mopan Maya, in which the brother of the gods of the, of the Sun and Venus, having been transformed into a monkey, becomes an unspecified planet that is probably Mars. For more on planetary astronomy in the Popol Vuh, see 92A, 92B, yada yada yada. So, that's a little more background. I found that interesting. It's all about animals and transformations. So, it's all about animals and transformation. So, are they describing physical animals that we find on Earth? Or are they actually talking about some type of extraterrestrial being that looks like a reptile, you know, the reptilian species of alien that people have talked about for a long time. Are they are they referring to the reptilians? Are they referring to greys or some type of extraterrestrial that looks like a monkey? A monkey-reptile hybrid? Who fucking knows? So let's have a look at Mars for, for a second. Does anyone remember back in the 1970s when the Mars rover took the photos of what looked like a face on Mars? And then there's all those conspiracy theories that NASA or the Air Force had had bombed the face and leveled uh, the entire area to cover up the existence of a of a long dead alien civilization. Because later photos taken, I think, during the '90s revealed a completely different shape. There's a region of Mars called the Pyramids of Elysium, which resembles very strongly the pyramid complexes on Earth in Egypt and Mexico. So, were, was NASA trying to, was NASA or the Air Force trying to cover up the existence of an alien race? Is that, are they, are these the same aliens that the Mayans are talking about in their mythology? The same beings that travel from Venus across the sky into the underworld and back each day? Curious, it's something to, th it's something to think about. Were there aliens living on Mars or and are there still aliens living on Mars? In my opinion, yeah, you can't rule that theory out. I think it's totally plausible that there was some type of extraterrestrial race living on Mars at some point. Whether this be millions of years ago or thousands of years ago, I guess we'll never know. But something weird happened to Mars, which I'll do an, I could do an entire episode just on that. Is that why the Mayans built so many observatories? To watch for the return of the gods? on these planets. Yeah, I mean, the most logical scientific explanation would be they wanted to track the planets, so they build observatories. 
Yeah, true, I, I won't argue that. But did the gods reside from these planets? And did they come from these planets? It's a very interesting and plausible idea. As always, I'll leave that up to you to decide. Okay, that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you to everyone who listened. A big thank you to everyone who made it to the end of this podcast. I know it's pretty long, but there's a lot of information I felt that needed to be covered. If you want to support the show, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Podbean or your chosen podcast provider. You can also rate or review the show on iTunes. This would help the show grow a lot. Share it around with your friends, your work colleagues, anyone you think that might like it. Join the Facebook page, follow and like that. Interact with fellow members of the Truth Tank community. It's pretty small, but I'm hoping to grow it. Thank you again to everyone who listened. I'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with part three of the Mayan calendar. So as always, I'm a tank. This is the truth. You are listening to the Truth Tank. May the truth be with you.